Celebrating the history, the triumph, and the legacy of Negro Leagues baseball, this is Black Diamonds, a Sirius XM podcast, recording in front of a live audience at the garage at Sirius XM Los Angeles. Here's your host, Negro Leagues Baseball Museum President, Bob Kendrick. Well, I, I tell you what, it is a thrill to be here in the Sirius XM Radio Studios here in L.A. And particularly excited to have someone who is joining me who is an exemplary manager, but more importantly, an exemplary human being. I, I met Dave Roberts, I believe, for the first time in 2015 when you were coaching with the Padres and my friend Dave Winfield. That's right. That's hosted, right. Hosted, hosted, and he did this for 10 years, hosted one of the best salutes to the Negro Leagues at that, Petco, anyone, right? that anyone was was doing. And I got to meet you and some of the other folks there involved with the organization who had all the old Negro League players out. And, you know, I could see then that it was very genuine for you as you were interacting with those players it was it was and um you know it's one of those things where coming up i I didn't know enough about the negro leagues and i'm a history major went to ucla and you can't really appreciate what's ahead of you or what you're doing you know in real time if you don't know how you got there and so uh, Dave Winfield's a friend of mine as yours, as well as yours, Bob. And so just to be a part of that and talk to uh, players that played in the Negro Leagues and kind of befriend them and shake their hands and hear some stories. It just I just was a sponge. I couldn't get enough of it. Yeah. And I tell people all the time, and I mean this in sincerity, the smartest thing that I ever did was I kept my mouth closed and I listened. Because the wisdom that, you know, you start talking about people like Buck O'Neill and Monty Irvin and Minnie Minoso, the late, great Ernie Banks, Ted Double Duty Radcliffe. You know, I sometimes still pinch myself, you know, for having had the opportunity to sit in their presence and hear those stories. And I know a lot of people want to focus on the hardships that they endured and they were real but they always wanted to talk about the joy that they had playing this game. Yeah, they did. And and the thing is that that's something that really uh, resonated with me is there wasn't, um, from the conversations that I had with these men, it wasn't bitterness. And obviously understanding um, the opportunities that they didn't get because of the color of their skin, but they just really enjoyed playing with their brothers um, and playing that brand of baseball and, and playing in the Negro Leagues. And I think that for me, um, to sort of try to get educated on things and promote change and awareness, to kind of go about it without bitterness, it's hard. Um, but learning from these men and having this conversation where if there's any group of men that can hold ill will, it's them. But as you said, Bob, it was pure joy telling stories. Yeah, no, no. And and I think most folks would agree with you if they had been bitter. I think all of us would have said you had every right to be bitter. And, and Dave, to a player that I've ever met, not one of them 
ever expressed any bitterness or spoke any ill will toward anyone who may have attempted to perpetrate something against them as they were traveling the highways and byways of this country. And it was that spirit, I think, that endeared me to them even more so. You know, as a novice about Negro League's history at the time when I got involved in 1993, I was blown away by what I did not know. And then I fell in love with the story and I fell in love with the amazing athletes and that spirit. And it took me a minute to understand where that came from. First and foremost, you could not convince them that they weren't playing the best baseball that was being played in this country. Now, the country said the best baseball was being played in the major leagues. They never believed that. They knew how good they were. And they knew how good their league was. And quite frankly, the major leaguers knew how good they were because they played countless exhibition games against one another. And then I know you played in in Mexico and places like that. When they went there, there was no separation. They all played together. So the major leaguers really knew that these guys could play. So they were never going to be bitter about baseball. Did they like the things that trial? Did they like the things that impacted them as they were traveling the highways and byways of our country? Of course not. You know, you go into a town, fill up a ballpark, and then not be able to get a meal from the same fans who had just cheered them and not have a place to stay. So you, the bus would become your refuge. It would become your restaurant. So no, they didn't like those things, but they seemingly would never allow their hearts to be hardened with hate. And as my friend Buck O'Neill would say, hate eats you up on the inside. Hate will take you right on out of here. You know, if you wake up every single day hating another human being and more times than not someone that you don't even know, that's a pretty miserable existence. No, it is. And uh, CeCe Sabathia, a former teammate of mine, um, is leading up, is heading up the uh, the Players Alliance mm-hmm. with Curtis Granderson, Edwin Jackson. Um, you know, Mookie Betts is a guy that we have right now with the Dodgers. And that spirit that you, you talk about um, is in those men as well. Oh, no doubt. And to kind of see those guys keep uh, the line moving past the torch, uh, share those stories uh, with the right message, the right uh, sentiment, heart, spirit behind it shows a lot of gratitude. And it's just something that for me, I learn every day, you know, I'm learning every day is kind of, you know, the message is one thing, but how you deliver it uh, is a whole separate thing. And so, again, it just goes back to, you know, and I was telling you a little story earlier about Don Newcomb, the late Don Newcomb, mm. who was a friend of mine. And, you know, when he talks about, you know, stories of the Negro Leagues and, and you know, we're going to get to Jackie and his face just lights up. And that's something that um, it doesn't mean that there's a focus and rights, right, wrongs, wrong. Um, but the game they played, um, they were very grateful of the game they played. And that's something for me is just really trying to be a, uh, I don't know, a caretaker of this game and, and keep telling stories because it's such a great game. It's a beautiful game. It, it really is. And that's the joy that they felt when they were playing this game. And it was the spirit that they took. And it was a spirit, as I say, somewhat of defiance. You won't let me play with you. I'll create my own. And uh, they took that to heart. And, and you spoke of Mookie. And I had Mookie on Black Diamonds a few weeks ago. And, you know, I've gotten to know him through the years when he was there with, with the Red Sox. And he, no stranger to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, a dynamic personality, a great ball player, 
And I talked to him about embodying that spirit. He plays the game the way that they played the game in the Negro Leagues. And for those who have oftentimes heard me talk about the Negro Leagues, whenever the old, old players from the Negro Leagues look at you and say, you could have played with us, that is the ultimate compliment. Let me tell you, and I remember hearing Dave Winfield talk about that because he befriended so many of them, and they'd sit them down and they say, you know what? You could have played with us. You know? And Mookie, Mookie embodies that same spirit, and, and it just it fills my heart with joy to see those young, particularly those young African-American ballplayers who understand their place in this game, their legacy in this game. They they do, uh, and, and Mookie, and, and I mentioned CC, and you know Andrew McCutcheon's another guy. Yes. It, it's just, uh, and another person I played with for many years was Tory Hunter, and it, it's great because uh, the thing I always kind of tell you know people is don't mistake my kindness for weakness, and uh, it's one of those things that a lot of those players had that same kind of traits in the sense of. You're smiling. You're having a good time on the <laughs> ball field. Um, you know, Mookie's going to tip his cap to the pitcher, and but he's trying to cut him. You know, and he's trying to <laughs> he's trying to take him deep and, and and compete like no other. And CC is friends with a lot of people, and but when he's on that mound, you know, he's trying to dominate you. And it's kind of for me, it's I love the player that can kind of compartmentalize the. You know, because baseball, as far as action itself, there's only minutes of action, right? And, and there's a lot of time in between to have that little kind of banter or little something with the catcher or the pitcher or the first baseman or somebody in the other dugout. But then to refocus for that pitch, you know, that's stuff that I did as a ball player and the cat and mouse with the pitcher or the first baseman or the other opposing manager when I'm trying to steal a base, but then ready for one pitch. And those guys that we mentioned just have that unique ability to do that. Before we start into our conversation about Jackie, I, I, I want to say share something that they, the late, great Buck O'Neill said. They asked him, because obviously you manage a great team there here in Los Angeles. Star-studded team. And they asked Buck, they said, well, Buck, how did you handle managing Satchel Paige? And because Satchel was the ultimate star. And you know what Buck said, Skip? What's that? He said, don't expect a thoroughbred to act like a mule. They don't. And so how do you handle managing such a star-studded team? You know what? It's uh, it's certainly as I say, it's a high class problem when you get a lot of thoroughbreds. I'll take it's as great many to have thoroughbreds. thoroughbreds I love thoroughbreds. <laughs> you can only have so many mules now, so um, we do have a lot of thoroughbreds. Um, and, and I think that it's uh, it's one of those things where it's like everyone's going to be treated uh, fairly but they're not going to be treated equally. And uh, I, I just think that, you know, that's just kind of the way the world works. But uh, I, I treat, you know, from Clayton Kershaw to Mookie Betts uh, to Freddie Freeman to all these guys, uh, certainly fairly uh, to the young rookie. Um, but they're just treated differently because uh, they've earned that right. Uh, absolutely. And I think that's what Buck was trying to say. Number one, Satchel was going to do what Satchel wanted to do. Uh, he was, you can really mean it. He was going to do it in the confines of what was necessary to help win, help the team win. Uh, and I think everybody understood that because, as they would always say, 
It was no shame. Uh, the Monarchs would ride into town. It was Satchel Page and the Kansas City Monarchs. It was his show. It was his show. And, 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 and Skip, nobody was going to say a disparaging word because Satchel was the meal ticket. Everybody knew they got to eat when Satchel was pitching. And, and so nobody said a word about it. And, and But the thing is, though, is that, you know, whether you're Buck O'Neill, whether you're Phil Jackson with Michael Jordan, um, you've got to understand, you know, uh, who pays the rent (laughs) and uh, you know, and the great coaches or managers or leaders, they understand that. And and it's a selfless position as far as being a head coach or a manager, because you got to understand again, who the superstars are and that's what drives the game. Yeah. Yeah. I want you to take a look at this clip and I want to get your perspective about what you see here uh, following this, this wonderful clip from Jackie Robinson. And I also want to say how pleased I am that my family can be here this afternoon and to thank baseball for the tremendous uh, opportunities that it has presented to me and also for this thrilling afternoon. I'm extremely proud and pleased to be here this afternoon, but must admit I'm going to be tremendously more pleased and more proud when I look at that third base coaching line one day and see a black face managing in baseball. Thank you very much. And that was actually shortly before he passed away. And and again, I'll go back to something that Buck O'Neill said to me. Buck O'Neill became the first black coach in Major League Baseball history in 1962, 15 years after Jackie breaks the color barrier. Major League Baseball gets his first African-American coach. And while he said he was proud of that honor of being the first he said he wished he had been the number 999,000 player uh, coach in baseball. And it meant better pay, maybe a little bit better living conditions. But Skippy, he said something really profound to me. He says, I couldn't stick out my chest because I'm the first black coach when I knew all of these other great black minds who were more than capable of waving a guy home. And those great black minds from the Negro Leagues never did transition into Major League Baseball as the guys who played the game on the field did. And so in 1972, there's Jackie Robinson still advocating for black presences off the playing field, in coaching roles, and in managerial roles. You are one of two. You and my dear friend, the great Dusty Baker. When you see that clip, where does it take you? Um, you know, it's, it's, I guess it takes me to a sad place first. And I say that, um, because, uh, you just mentioned Dusty, who's a good, good friend of mine as well. And, you know, it's interesting is uh, I heard a story about Dusty where, uh, you know, when you hear about Dusty Baker, um, you hear he's great with players. Um, he's fun. You know, he had a tremendous baseball career and, uh, he's a player's manager and, um, you never hear, and Dusty said this, he goes, you know what hurts me is that I never hear that Dusty Baker has a great baseball, baseball mind. mind. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of where we just, I mean, it's Dusty and I right now, and it's, you know, it's it's sad in the sense that uh, people don't feel that people of color have the mind uh, to manage people, manage the game, um, and like Buck said, there's many people before him that could have handled that similar role. Um, so I'm on a couple, uh, 
diversity committees to promote people of color, minorities, uh, gender women to uh, get uh, prominent roles in baseball. And so uh, we got a long way to go. And so, again, it just saddens me when I hear Jackie say that. Yeah, no, and, and I think that's what we've been talking about consistently as we look at 75 years since Jackie broke the color barrier with this organization, the Dodgers. And we're still working so diligently to try and become more inclusive in our sport in its hierarchy. Uh, and, And I think back to all of the great black managers of the Negro Leagues. These managers were astute students of the game. Andrew Rube Foster. I can't wait till you come to Kansas City. Oh, I'm going to be there. I got a group of players that are going to be there with me. (laughs) Yeah, Andrew Rube Foster, who organized the Negro Leagues in 1920, was one of the most brilliant tacticians this game has ever seen. Because Rube Foster, number one, Skip, would have gone in the Hall of Fame as a player, as an executive, and as a manager. And, And Rube Foster, folks, was known to find his ball players in the early 1900s, if they were tagged out standing up, oh, you were supposed to slide. You better slide. You better you slide. You better get dirty. dirty. That's yeah, right. Yeah, you're down right. and get dirty. And, and then he would draw a circle down the first baseline and a circle down the third baseline. And if every one of his players couldn't drop a bunt inside the circle, he would find them. Yeah, no, he was adamant about the style of play that became signature of Negro Leagues baseball. Fast, aggressive, daring. So you bunt your way on, still second, still third. And if you weren't too smart, they were still at home. And, and so there's guys like Rube Foster, Buck O'Neill, brilliant manager. George Altman, who's still with us today, played for Buck in Kansas City. Then Buck sent him over to the Chicago Cubs. He had a wonderful major league career with New York Mets, St. Louis Cardinals. Go over to Japan and has a rebirth of his career in Japan. And he still says to this day that Buck O'Neill was the greatest manager he ever played for. And and then there's guys who I would say you remind me of, the great C.I. Taylor, which is the award that we named, which I think we were able to present to you You a few years ago. It's named for the great Charles Isham Taylor. Again, Charles Isham Taylor went to Clark College in Atlanta. College-educated guy, and was, again, a brilliant strategist. So there's always been this legacy of great baseball, black baseball minds, but we haven't seemed to be able to break through. What, in your estimation, still yet needs to be done, and how do we create a pool of talent that can be in a position to compete for these jobs? Well, um, as far as the pool, a good friend of mine, Tyrone Brooks, uh, works for Major League Baseball, Mm -hmm. and uh, he's on the pipeline. He's a pipeline chair, and I'm on the committee. And basically, we're going to to colleges all over the country and finding uh, people of color uh, to try to encourage them to get into baseball because baseball, uh, you know, it, it... you know, like anything, you don't just get the compensation that you might want to get right out of college and you got to sort of pay your dues. <laughs> um, but I think that that's one part of it. But I just think that, you know, right now where we're at, there's I think it's under eight uh, percent 
black ball players and people hire people want to get around be involved with people that look like them and so you know to your question as far as what do we do um you know we've just got to be proactive and intentional in hiring people of color in executive positions and that's something that i just love it because you know you're talking about dusty you're talking about buck um, different people, they, they just see the world differently, the game differently. And that's for me, I love, you know, as a manager, it's about putting your players in the best position to have success. But that style of play, I played that way when yeah, I was coming yeah. up. But the game has sort of changed in the sense of the home run and the strikeout. You don't bunt like when I played the game. And believe me, I would love to get back to that we just don't have a pool of players that have that skill set as far as and that get to the big leagues. And that's the thing that's unfortunate for me. So just getting, you know, people of color, black people uh, in, in leadership roles, managing roles, and then get these ball players. you know, um, Hunter Green is a person that uh, L.A. kid mm-hmm. uh, was a first pick a few years ago. Um, great family, and uh, he's reached out to me on numerous occasions talking about his uh, responsibility as a black ball player and talking about surviving as a young pitcher in the big league. So we're coming. We're, 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 we got the right players. Um, Byron Buxton's another one who's a special young kid that I can't wait to meet, and I just see him from the other side of the ball field. But uh, just the way I hear him talk and, and yeah. the things that he says, and obviously like the ball player, but we just got to continue to have these conversations. Yeah, no, and, and, and I had the opportunity here recently to sit down with Tristan McKenzie. Just a, number one, just an incredible young man who has tremendous talent and the potential to be great. And he's built almost identical to Satchel. And and so we're standing there at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and and he's in awe of standing next to the life-size statue of Satchel Page and to rub elbows with Satchel, which is like rubbing the tree stump at the Apollo. It's good luck. (laughs) (laughs) And he rubbed elbows with Satchel, and Tristan's been lights out ever since. He beat my Royals like a drum. I'm telling you, I'm going to have to stop telling these guys about rubbing elbows with Satchel because they're killing us. Uh, And so I've got another clip that we've got teed up, and we were very fortunate. Uh, I'll never forget this. Uh, As my mother would say, as long as I'm in my natural mind, 2012 All-Star Game, And we had Dave Winfield moderate a discussion between Frank Robinson and Henry Aaron. They're at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Let me tell you guys, it was absolutely incredible. And the question was posed to Frank about managing, and this is what he had to say. To talk about managing a ball club out of the clear blue, the general manager told me, we want you to manage the Cleveland Indians. And the season was over. We had three games to go. I said, oh, okay, I'll do that. But he said, we want you to be a player manager. I said, I don't want to be a player manager. It's hard enough to play this game as it is. Then to be a player manager, that's going to make it even tougher. He says, no, we want you to be a player manager. I said, okay, how much are you going to pay me to be a manager? Because I had a contract for 180000 for the following year. And he said, we're going to pay you 200000 I said, now, wait a minute. 
I said, I wasn't very good in math. <laughs> but I know that he's talking about paying me $20,000 to manage the club. And I get the 180 for uh, being a player. And he says, uh, I said, you're only going to pay me $20,000 manage the club? He said, that's right. Take it or leave it. So I had, a, I, had a, I had to do some thinking real quick. And I decided I wanted to follow the cause of African-Americans and, and minorities in baseball. That barrier was still there. If I turn this job down, when will that door open again for a black person to walk through that door as a manager? So I decided to take the job, and uh, I was player manager for two years. Yeah, that's late, great Frank Robinson, uh, who, again, and we talk about this all the time, for a guy who is in the Hall of Fame, it's hard to be underrated. But Frank Robinson is likely underrated for just how great a ball player he was. And, of course, he breaks through as a manager. Talked about Buck O'Neill being 15 years to be the first black coach. Frank Robinson is 28 years after Jackie Brake's color barrier that he becomes the major's first full-time black manager. And he felt almost as if he had to do it or it wouldn't open the door again for another black person to pursue that job. And again, do you, when you took the job, you got the interim role with the Padres and for, for what, all of one game? All of one game. <laughs> all, and I was on one. <laughs> You know, when you hear Frank talk about that, do you kind of relate to what he's saying? I do. Um, I do. Um, but I, I have a lot of uh, empathy towards that period of time. Um, and um, being the first uh, black man to manage a big league ball club. Um, and, you know, when you hear the take it or leave it, um, that's, that just kind of, it, it digs deep in the sense of, you know, we have other options and you have no leverage and, um, take it or leave it. And, and I think that what lands with me is doing a job that's difficult, but also having the responsibility, um, that you can't mess up mm -hmm. because you might mess it up, uh, for other people going forward. And for Frank's point was, I've got to take this job because if I don't take it, uh, no other uh, black man might not have this opportunity. Um, so I think for me, it's more of you have to do a job to manage. You got to do it the right way. You got to win. Um, but if you don't do it, then, the, then you just feel that, see, I, I told you they, they couldn't do it. You know, so um, right or wrong, that's kind of just an honest admission. Yeah, no, and, and, and I think that is, is so valid. And, and, and it's not only in the world of sports. I think it's in every aspect of business life. If you are that first black in a particular role, you kind of feel the weight of your race on your shoulders from the standpoint you're like, okay, I cannot fail because if I don't do this right, somebody else may not get that opportunity. And, and, and it's very real. Whether it is the case or not, 
I think inherently we feel that weight and that responsibility to try and perform at a level, not just for our own gratification and the ability to move in this world, but you feel like I've got to do this so that someone else will get an opportunity uh, as well. And, and I can empathize with what Frank was saying also. And, and you could hear it in his voice, you know, as he was relating that back to us in, in 2012, what that experience felt like. Yeah, you can. And, and, um, Frank and I were really good friends, and uh, he helped me um, in my first few years as a manager um, and trying to help kind of guide me through how to manage, you know, above the media, the players. Um, you know, he was a very tough man, um, but in his voice right there, showing a little bit of vulnerability um, was something that you don't see very, very often no. from him. No, he, he doesn't show that vulnerability, but I think right there it was kind of um, now or never type thing for him. And so to kind of check his ego for the greater good, um, pretty amazing story. When you win the World Series as a manager, obviously you won it as a player, and we'll talk about that stolen base here uh, shortly. Did you understand or think about even remotely that it was now you and Cito Gaston as the two African-American managers to win World Series in Major League Baseball history? I, I didn't. Um, I, I knew it. Obviously, I knew it. Um, you're just so uh, elated for ultimately hoisting that trophy up. And uh, I did get a phone call from Cito uh, shortly thereafter. And so for me, I'm 50 years old. I grew up watching the Blue Jays in the early 90s and Devon White, Roberto Alomar, uh, Tony Fernandez, uh, you know, all those guys. Um, so for for me to get a call from Cito Gaston, who won the World Series twice back to back, and say welcome to the club and how he's been following my career as a ball player and as a manager was just overwhelming um, for me to 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 know that he was kind of following my my trek and I was in a very exclusive club so uh, he, we still text frequently yes but uh, it's it just what a, what a tremendous honor yeah yeah no I, I recall vividly handing over. To Cito Gaston, the Jackie Robinson Lifetime Achievement Award there in ceremonies in Kansas City. And, and he was so moved to get an award named for Jackie Robinson, but also in recognition of what he had done in this game. You know, as Dave mentioned, Cito Gaston won two World Series. And we have a tendency in this game to bring guys back from the dead, you know, to manage on occasion. And I don't care if Cito don't want a managerial job. You would almost think that every time a job came up, somebody would at least mention Cito Gaston's name because he won two World Series. And, and, you know, but again, I think it's a little bit indicative of still the work that is left to be done. And we have to all kind of be involved in being a part of the solution. I think we've done a good job of identifying the problem. We just got to all be collectively involved with the solution. 
And so we're going to take a short break. You are listening to Black Diamonds live in studio at Sirius XM in Los Angeles. It's the official podcast of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Make sure you download and subscribe on the SXM app, or you can get it at Stitcher, Pandora, Apple, or anywhere that you get your podcast. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Black Diamonds Live in Studio at Sirius XM in Los Angeles. I'm sitting down with Dodgers skipper Dave Roberts. And Dave, I've got another clip teed up that I want you to take a look at and get your perspective on after you have a chance to watch this from my good friend, Kenny Williams. I've tried to be a champion uh, for, for interviews and for opportunity. Uh, but uh, I feel like I failed because there hasn't been, you know, anyone, um, you know, to have a sustained career that followed. Yeah, I'm disappointed. Um, but, you know, you keep grinding it out. And you keep trying to uh, articulate the need to ownership. And I've got I've I've, I've got a, a I've got to walk a line that is. Uh, it lends its voice to the disappointment. And if you Google right now, you'll find a couple of articles here, you know, in the last few months that have been written where I, I've expressed this displeasure. But I also have to be very careful not to lose my voice with ownership because one thing my father was very strong on is uh, be accomplished enough to not fight from the outside in, but be accomplished enough to be in the room, to lend your voice inside the room to affect change and not just beating on the wall on the outside like he felt they were at, at his time. Um, so that's what I try to do. And, and much of it is not publicized uh, because, it, you know, I don't know that that is the way you, you get things done. But certainly, you know, I haven't been able to um, get it done this way. So I'm not sure where we are right, right now. Yeah. That was Kenny Williams last year on Black Diamonds. And again, you could feel the genuineness in his disappointment. And again, I think that comes along with that whole feeling like you're shouldering a load, you know? And he was very candid in that moment about that disappointment, that he felt like he had not done enough when I'm not sure that he could have done any more. You know what I mean? It's kind of, because ultimately you can do all the groundwork, all the legwork, all the encouraging. You can show how and why these things need to happen. But in the, in the end, it's someone else's decision ultimately to make. And so I'm not sure he could have done any more than what he has done. But he still he still felt that weight. Yeah, Kenny has done has gone above and beyond, um, uh, you know, in his fight to uh, get black people hired in, in significant positions. Um, so he certainly hasn't failed in any realm. Um, 
you know, what, what I, from that clip right there, um, Bob, I, I just saw the, uh, you know, when he was kind of threading the needle or talking about that. And what I sense from that a little bit, and I love the way his father said that you want to be accomplished enough to be in the room, uh, which really makes sense. But the thing that's really sad for me is that you could see him kind of treading the political line mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and he couldn't come off as the angry black man. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is that it's unfortunate because you want to send a message and speak your truth and your voice and what you believe is right and needs to change. But then you, if you come off in baseball, we call it, you come out, come off too hot. Then it's like, Oh, you're just an angry black man. Now no one wants to listen. But then if you don't, then it's not, you're not passionate enough. So that's the thing that you could just see Kenny as an executive and he's done it for such a long time and had so much success. He's still kind of treading that fine oh, line. Fun. You know, and and that's just unfortunate. Yeah, that he has to feel that way. Yeah, well, but and, and it it goes back historically. It goes back because as we've been examining the seventy fifth anniversary of Jackie's breaking of the color barrier, integration of our sport, and the ramifications of integration of our sport, I go back to the mindset of the major league owners at that time that that first black player had to be of high moral character. You had to be so upstanding, yet they weren't describing their own workforce at that time. Yeah, they had to be something that their workforce really wasn't. And, 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 and I think we've kind of, we've seen that continue to con perpetuate through time. Uh, uh, in terms of the way that people, you, you kind of expressed a little bit of that when you talked about yourself and Dusty being considered player managers and these, you know, ability to relate to the guys. But what about my baseball knowledge? And what about my baseball knowledge? You know, nobody said anything about my baseball knowledge. It, it, it's kind of like it was we were in the room in 2006 when Buck O'Neill was up for induction into the Hall of Fame, Skip, and everybody coming in the room, oh, Buck, you're such a great ambassador for the game. You've done all of this for the game, and, man, you're just great ambassador. I think old Buck got a little tired of that. And he finally looked up at the folks and said, you know what? I could play. <laughs> all this ambassador stuff, I could play. <laughs> right, right. That, that's right. And, and that's the thing that, you know, um, you know, you mentioned Cito and, and couldn't get a job after winning two world championships and ne never come up even in the late 90s. And, and Dusty was very accomplished throughout his career, and he had a scratch and claw to get back uh, into the game, you know. And he obviously took a situation in Houston, which, uh, you know, wasn't in a good spot as far as uh, through the media um, and just handled it uh, with class and kept that group of ball players together and, and rode that out to continue to win. And um, it, it's not just because, you know, he was a player's manager. There's a lot of things that he can do uh, as far as leadership wise on the baseball field. So uh, those are just a couple examples that kind of support, you know, our conversation. And talk about your relationship with your dad. Did he talk to you at all about the Negro leagues? So my dad grew up in Houston, Texas, uh, one of eight, uh, served our country in the Marine Corps for 30 years, passed away five years ago. And um, 
he talked about Jackie, didn't talk a whole lot about the Negro Leagues. I was kind of just talking more. Uh, I was a three-sport athlete, mm-hmm. so I played football, basketball, and baseball. So we were kind of talking about athletes, whatever was in season, and, and more current. Um, Dave Winfield um, was a person that really kind of in that situation when I was uh, – that get together we had when I was with the Padres really kind of opened my eyes to the Negro leagues. And for me, just really wanting to know more. So that was years ago and I'm still, you know, chomping at the bit to, to continue to learn more. Yeah, no, it's, it it is so fascinating. It really is. And I started as a volunteer with the museum 29 years ago in 1993. And I had no idea that it would land me in the role that I am now as president of this organization. There's no way you see that coming. Uh, but again, I just fell in love with the story and I fell in love with the amazing athletes who made this story. And I wanted to learn as much as I could. And I didn't want to keep it to myself. I wanted everybody else to feel the same way I felt about this incredible piece of baseball and, and Americana. And uh, it's been such a joy and a blessing, as I mentioned earlier, to do this work, to start the process of educating as many people as we possibly can, because, Skip, and I, and I think you'll likely agree when you come to visit, you walk out of there and you are amazed by what you learn, but you're a little bit dismayed by the fact that I just now had an opportunity to learn it. Why didn't I know this when I was in school? And the answer is really simple. American historians did us all a tremendous disservice. They kept this wonderful chapter of baseball and Americana away from us. Thus, countless generations of us went through our own formal educations without knowing one of the most significant chapters, not in baseball history, but in American history. And that's that rich, compelling, inspirational story of the Negro Leagues, a story that I believe is as important today than ever before, given some of the things that we've seen in our society. And it's always interesting to get to see people's reactions when they come in and get a glimpse of what this history represented both on and off the field. Yeah, you know, you know, it's you just hit something for me. It's a, a chord where um you're talking about the Negro League Museum, uh you're talking about um history of our country. It's not just blacks that are going to the museum, it's whites. Oh yeah. Latins, Hispanics, women, kids, uh, you know, people from older generations. It's, and, you know, in this day and age, there's just so much kind of cynicism and hate. And it's like, you know, when, when I hear you and, and tell stories about the Negro Leagues, it's just, we all should want to know more. And we all want the same things to be happy and to take care of our families. And that's what made this country great, you know, but in the history books, we don't hear all these things. And so for you, a person to kind of be a storyteller, um, you know, we're all, I know that, you know, everyone here and, and beyond is so grateful. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it, like I said, it's been a tremendous blessing for me. And I hope that when people go through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, they leave number one with, I, I hope, a stronger embracing of the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion and how those are essentially pillars 
toward building a bridge for tolerance and respect. That is ultimately where we need to go as a society. If we can get to a point of tolerance and respect, I think we're going to be okay. Yeah, we, I think we're going to be okay. And, and so as I go back now, and I think 75 years of Jackie breaking the color barrier, and we look at what happened after Jackie breaks the color barrier, this influx of black and brown talent started to flow into Major League Baseball. And it completely changed the way the game was played. I, I tell people one of my favorite factoids that we display there at the museum, Dave, it's, it says from 1949 through 1959, nine of 11 National League most valuable players were former Negro League stars. Now, we ain't even talking about rookies of the year. These are MVPs. Folks, that's the immediate impact that the Negro Leagues had on this game. The American League was very slow to sign black players. They really didn't want black players. As you know, Boston was the last team to sign a black player, the name Elijah Pumsey Green in 1959. Mr. Green was a good player, two-time All-Star. They could have had that pick of the litter of star talent and, and rejected it. Henry Aaron, Willie May, Jackie Robinson weren't good enough to play for the Red Sox. And, and, and Larry Doby once said he tried to get Cleveland to sign Willie Mays, Ernie Banks, and Henry Aaron. And the scouting report came back and said Mr. Mays couldn't hit the curveball, Ernie Banks had no range, and Henry Aaron had a hitch in his swing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I hope they fired that scout. Man. And, and to think, y'all, that it was a scout who had basically determined that they had too many brothers on that team. If they had made that move with the great pitching staff that the Indians had at that time, we would be talking about the Cleveland Indians in the same mode in which people talk about the, the great Yankee teams. The Yankees, yeah, they had Bob Feller then too, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah no, and, and somebody determined they didn't need that many brothers or want that many brothers on the team, and they came back with this ridiculous scouting report. And, and so, and, and you know that wasn't the only time that that happened. And, and so I say that because the Negro Leagues brought such a pool of talent to Major League Baseball. And, and I want to throw it to a clip to, from my late friend, uh, Lou Brock, who was Buck O'Neill's surrogate son. Buck signed Lou to the Chicago Cubs and then sent, well, well, he was the last one to sign off on the trade that sent Lou to St. Louis for a hurt arm pitcher named Ernie Brolio. And, and the Buck said the Cubs came to him, Dave, and he said, well, we got a chance to get Ernie Brolio, who had won 20 games in the major leagues prior. And, and Buck said he knew that this was going to be an opportunity for Lou to play every day. And, and of course, the Cubs are playing all those day games, and Lou was having some challenges playing that sun outfield there in Wrigley Field. And, and, and so Buck, being the company man that he was, he said, yeah, that's a good idea. We need pitching. Well, we never heard of Ernie Brolio again until we talk about some of the bad trades in baseball history. Lou Brock goes to St. Louis and immediately helps ignite the St. Louis Cardinals. Lou Brock becomes a Hall of Famer. 
Uh, and every time Buck said he would go to Bush Stadium at that time, said the fans there gave him a standing ovation. <laughs> <laughs> so please tee up this clip from my friend, the late, great Lou Brock. The Negro League actually was a rather bar that fed Major League Baseball. And we look at the trend that took place when the Negro League were prospering and on its way out as a reservoir, as a reservoir no longer was bringing in, it was being that it was being the siphoned out. And till we come down to a point where there is no reservoir today to pump black players into baseball, that's almost a signal that it may be time again to start this reservoir because it was a feud through Major League Baseball for about 40 years. And so now, after 40 years, which is a generation, a full generation, the numbers of black players are not there anymore. We're relying upon scouts to go into the black community and pull them out. Scouts are not going in there. Uh, so they don't see them. We need to create, again, a reservoir. And that was, oh, God, I'm trying to remember when we recorded that with Lou they're at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and we're still having those conversations today about creating that reservoir. But I got to tell you, man, my heart was just filled with joy yesterday when four of the top five draft picks in this 2022 draft were African-American kids. And we didn't get one at the Kansas City Royals, but... <laughs> <laughs> But I was still excited by that fact. And I believe eight out of the top 20 may have been African-American kids. And, and I say that because I know how much work the Players Association, Major League Baseball, and now the Player Alliance are putting in to try and reverse this alarming trend. Because what Lou mentioned was absolutely right. Major League Baseball was able to come into the Negro Leagues and siphon that star talent out. And, and they were able to get that star talent for literally pennies on the dollar. You know, to think that you got Larry Doby for $5,000 or you got a Henry Aaron or Willie Mays for likely $15,000. Even in that era, they would have been six-figure kinds of ball players in order to be able to get them, but the Negro League owners were essentially stuck between a rock and a hard place. You weren't going to be able to fight off this from occurring, and so you had to just try to get what you could get and sell that talent as quickly as you can and make as, what, as, make as much as you could before the business of black baseball died. And now it's about, as Lou mentioned, creating another reservoir of talent. And not only creating that reservoir, but making sure that talent can be seen. And, and so what were your thoughts yesterday as you were maybe taking in, well, yesterday as a day of time of this recording, taking in what was transpiring there with the draft? Well, a, a couple things. I, I, I think that um, it was obviously very exciting to see uh, black players taken in the first round and early. Um you know, the last, call it 20 years, it's been very difficult to play the game of baseball. Um, 
basketball, uh, football has sort of got market share of black ball players, athletes, and um, travel ball has become a big thing. So it's just hard to find the means to to play the tr- baseball because you got to travel and you got to pay for the coaches and it's it costs a lot of money. Yes, it does. And so just economically, it's hard to get people of color to play the game to even keep up with um, players now that just play one sport. So you can take an athlete, but they just don't have the opportunity to kind of hone their skills. So to see uh, eight of 20 or whatever the number, uh, it, it was. it's really exciting. And the thing that I'm also really encouraged about is Major League Baseball, we're starting to do a better job of marketing our players and and white players and and black players. Um, you know, Mookie's getting national commercials. Mm-hmm. Um, Tim Anderson's a, a big, huge personality. He's starting to get some commercials, and he's going to be starting uh, shortstop for the American League tomorrow night. Um, and obviously, CeCe's done a good job of marketing. So we're doing a good job or doing a better job of kind of – so now – when you see people of color saying, hey, that could be me. And the thing that I love is, you know, the Negro Leagues, what they did is that they just brought their personalities out onto the ball field. And I think that now baseball, kind of following basketball a little bit, is that they're letting the athletes, white, black, whatever, Latin, kind of be themselves. And their abilities are even showing better once you can allow them to be themselves. So I think that's something that... You know, we've been hesitant on uh, for quite some time, but it's starting to show come out. Yeah, no, that's what I talk about all the time. You know, those unwritten, unwritten rules in baseball, they didn't apply in the Negro Leagues. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you know, Satchel gives up a homer 460 feet. He's going to admire it too, and you can yeah, dance exactly. all you want to first Matter base, fact, but when, I'm going to get you the next time. When, when Ruth did a home run off of Satchel, who was at home plate to greet him? Satchel. (laughs) (laughs) And Buck said they held up the game so they could get the ball so that Ruth could sign the ball for Satchel. And then he struck him out three times. There you go. There you go. (laughs) But but that's the stuff that, you know, the game's about the players and the fans, and that's the stuff that the fans brought them out to watch ballplayers, you know? Yeah, no, it's, you know, I'm glad to see us get into that mode too because that's what I talk about is the fact that I just believe that basketball and football have completely outmarketed Major League Baseball, and I've said this on countless occasions, the thing that we love about baseball is its tradition. The thing that has hurt baseball is its tradition. Is its tradition. Yeah, yeah we got to get better at marketing our stars. We are a star-driven society now, and the NBA and the NFL seemingly understand that. The Negro Leagues understood that, and hopefully we'll see that trend of allowing these personalities to kind of come out and not be kind of, I don't know, frowned upon when they do display their personalities. And so, and, and, and before I let you go, speaking of stolen bases, and Lou Brock was one of the great ones, and he says when he gets to St. Louis on that trade from Chicago, the first person who reached out to him was the legendary Cool Papa Bell. And Lou said, I knew who Cool Papa Bell was. But I had no idea that Cool Papa Bell knew who I was. And he says, Cool calls me, says, I want to meet with you. And he said, okay, Cool. He said, they get together, and he says, Cool starts telling him things about base running and base stealing that he said he never heard before. He said, Cool, he says, Cool, I never saw this in the book. 
Cool Papa says, it ain't in the book. <laughs> and, and so when Cool Papa bailed, when Lou sets the single season stolen base record, who's there to greet him? Cool Papa Bell. And so Dave had pulled the bag out the ground and Cool Papa Bell had it and they give him the microphone and he said, Lou, we going to give you this bass because if we don't give it to you, you're going to steal it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But you, make, you steal that bass. You steal that bass in that, in, in that playoff game uh, against your rivals. What was that moment like for you? And I, I got to know that you already knew when you were there that you were going to steal the base, or you certainly going to attempt to steal the base. I did, and, and it's it's funny is that I, I know somehow there was a connection from Lou Brock to Maury Wills <laughs> to myself, you know, and Maury was my mentor. Yes. And um, just telling me at some point in my career there's going to be a big base and everyone in the ballpark knows that I'm going to steal that base, and I can't be afraid to steal that base. And so um, as I take, take the field to pinch run for Kevin Millar, I had Maury Wills on one of my shoulders saying, DR, this is your chance. This is what we <laughs> talked about on the backfields um, of Vero Beach. And on the other side, I've got this Bill Buckner uh, guy <laughs> saying that if you get thrown out, the Red Sox faithful is going <laughs> to you know, alienate you forever. So... Fortunately, the Maury Will side went out, and it's just one of those things that um, it was an opportunity, and I was prepared, and I was on a great team in, in Boston. Uh, that 2004 Red Sox team was something pretty special. So uh, for me to play a little piece in that, and uh, yeah, that's that you know that stolen base that it's not that big in baseball, but it isn't until you need it, and then when you need that stolen base, it ends up being a big play. So I was just lucky about that one. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, it was one of those great moments in baseball history, propelled you guys to winning a world championship there in, in Boston. Dave, I, I want to thank you for being here on Black Diamonds. I want to thank you for all the work that not only you do to advocate for the African-American athlete, but also the work that you're doing to promote the Asian-American race and athlete and just this quest to try and establish a, a level of equality for all people. We commend you for everything that you are giving this game, but also what you're doing to help make our society a better place. So, man, thank you for being here on Black Diamonds Live in L.A. at the Sirius XM Radio Studios. I will see you in Kansas City. Dave, thank you, man. We appreciate you. Oh, Bob, thank you very much. Thank you, everyone here. This was such a treat and such an honor. Thank you, and I can't wait to uh, see you when we head out to Kansas City. It's going to be fun. <laughs> if you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, nlbm.com, and follow us on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. 
Additional voiceovers provided by Darnio Samuels. Editing and sound design by Rob Moore. Special thanks to Sirius XM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno. Sirius XM Podcast.